July 23rd of this year, 2022, will be the 55th anniversary of the Detroit race riot. 43 people died during that chaotic week, and 1,189 were injured. Our guest, Howard University professor Clarence Lusain, was there. His mother and sister were shot. We talked with Professor Lusain about his memory of the 12th Street riot in a Q&A interview in 2011. We invited him back to talk more about that moment in his young life and much more. Clarence Lusain is a professor of political science who has traveled the world teaching and talking about comparative race relations, modern social movements, comparative politics of Africa, the Caribbean, and Europe. From time to time, he's also added a little jazz to his life, and we'll discuss that with him in a moment. Dr. Clarence Lusain, the last time we talked 11 years ago in a Q&A program, you said something uh, interesting about your son, and that was his name. His name was Ellington. And I didn't get a chance to ask you why and more about that. Why did you name your son Ellington, and how old is he today? Uh, well, I named, uh, so it's great to talk to you again, Brian. Uh, I named my son Ellington for a couple of reasons. One, uh, I met my wife at a jazz concert, and so just to sort of commemorate that. Uh, and then, you know, he was born here in Washington, D.C., and one of the most illustrious uh, sons of the city uh, is Duke Ellington. And and then I thought Ellington just had a kind of uh, elegance to it uh, that I wanted to to kind of put on to my son so that uh, he knows that, you know, I always have seen him as uh, a star in his own right. And so, you know, he, he loves the name, uh, and he's uh, almost 13 now. And one of the things that... I really liked about uh, Duke Ellington beyond his uh, jazz was his humanity and his uh, outreach to the world. And as we know, uh, jazz music and particularly Duke Ellington was uh, global. And so I wanted to convey that. And then uh, since you and I last talked, a lot of my work has been in the international area. And in fact, uh, in 2014, uh, we spent a, almost a year in Japan, and in fact, my son did his uh, kindergarten uh, at all Japan uh, in Kyoto. Uh, so that's you know been the, the trajectory for him, and uh, and I think at the time, uh, yeah, he was pretty young, uh, but he also has been taking uh, piano lessons. Uh, so he's been playing the piano for a few years now. Well, and part of your background uh, online, they talk about you teaching some about jazz uh, and before I ask you that question had, did, have you ever met Duke Ellington? Uh, I did not I saw him uh, in his uh, last years uh, he came through uh, Detroit one time uh, but you know I never met him and then I think he passed in the 74, 75 around that time uh, and I was still a college student I hate to tell you this, but when I was 15 years old, I met him in Chicago. So I have that memory. I'm so <laughs> jealous. Oh, my goodness. I was trying to make you jealous. Uh, anyway, it, it worked. Uh, go back. Um, but for, before we ask about Japan, what are you doing now? Are you still attached to Howard University? I am. So when you and I uh, talked back in 2011, I was at American University. And then a few years after that, I was uh, asked to come back to Howard uh, to be chair of the political science department. Uh, so it's a tough de decision because I really liked American University and I had friendships and, you know, it had been really important in particular a lot of the uh, international work I was doing. Uh, but I also had thought about coming back to Howard for, for many years. And so uh, I took advantage of that opportunity and, and came back as chair. Uh, it was challenging because it, I moved essentially from being a uh, professor to being an administrator. And so I spent, uh, you know, four or five years 
working on just day-to-day administrative kinds of duties, uh, which are necessary, but it was really kind of not my inclination. And uh, it, you know, pulls you away from the kind of research you, you have to do as a scholar, the time you need. Uh, so uh, I did one term, and so now I'm no longer chair, uh, but I'm still in the Department of uh, Political Science at Howard. Go back to Japan. Why were you there, and your son was five at the time? Yes, so uh, American University had an exchange program with Michigan uh, University in Kyoto, and uh, elementary school system was starting. And so we were trying to decide whether to put my son in either the English language American school uh, or put him in the local school. So we said, let's put him in the local school, see if he likes it. Uh, If he doesn't, then we will uh, move him. But he absolutely loved it. Uh, No one at the school except for one person spoke English. Uh, So he was immersed in in Japanese. Uh, So he he picked it up pretty good. And the school was very uh, great. Uh, Kindergarten was very active. So they didn't just sort of sit in a classroom, but they were out cleaning the streets. They were going to the parks. Uh, He absolutely loved it. So uh, I need to uh, get him back there uh, so that he can kind of see what, what, you know, what he went through when he was was that age. Let me ask you, because you write so much about race, I want to ask you the difference between teaching at a substantially white university, American, teaching at Howard, a significantly black university, and teaching and being in a Japanese society. How do you see race different in those three environments? Now, that is a great question. Uh, And it's also shaped by uh, status. So American University uh, is not only a predominantly white institution, but also primarily uh, middle and upper middle class uh, in terms of our student base. And so students come with a great deal of resources. They've come from uh, educational situations that were were top-notch. So there's a, a different kind of... Uh, dynamic uh, between professors uh, and students uh, at American University. And it's a liberal university, so its uh, attitude towards issues around race as a university uh, tend to be liberal uh, and progressive, uh, which is different than, of course, uh, some other PWIs. Uh, At Howard University, we're steeped in tradition, uh, the university started in 1867. It came out of the uh, Reconstruction era and has always saw its mission as broader than just ed- education, but that students would uh, specifically uh, change the world. And so that's an atmosphere that permeates the campus from the classroom to the lunchroom uh, to meeting rooms. And so I have just found that to be just kind of remarkable. So even though there are a lot of challenges uh, for our students, we have many, many, many students who are first generation. Uh, That was rare at American University. Uh, But at Howard, it's not perhaps the norm, but it's certainly extremely high uh, for a lot of our students. First time they've ever left home is when they come to college uh, at Howard University. And so, you know, those can be really challenging. But students see themselves in a collective sense, and they see themselves as all kind of on a mission, and that creates a kind of collectivity uh, and support among the students that that I think is just kind of remarkable. Uh, Now, when I was in Japan, I actually had a mix of students because I was teaching uh, international relations. And so... I not only had Japanese students, but students from other countries who were in Japan studying. So I had students from Africa, from parts of Europe, from Latin America. Uh, so it may not be completely representative of uh, Japanese college students, uh, but it was a great. Uh, it was 
uh, challenging because the students, uh, almost all of the students, had not thought a lot about issues of race, uh, except in a more, the most generalized way possible. And so for a lot of what I went through uh, was sort of the first time they sort of had to, to reflect on uh, what uh, phenotype difference means, what racial systemic racism means, what institutional racism means. Uh, but I enjoyed it uh, immensely. As you know, when we last talked, we spent a little bit of time, not much, on a major event in racial politics in the United States, the Detroit riots of 1967. For those that didn't hear that first interview, how old were you then in that July of uh, 1967? Where were you during those riots? And uh, my memory is your mother and sister were shot during that time. I want to catch up on that part. Uh, So uh, first, let me say that after that uh, discussion, because uh, it really opened up some doors I had not thought about a lot, uh, I actually went back and talked to my sisters. And I actually got, you know, a different perspective because I saw it through my eyes, but through their eyes, they saw it very, uh, not very differently, but, you know, differently. And uh, for for people who didn't hear the uh, previous interview, I was about 13 at the time, and my family and I had been in Canada uh, fishing uh, on the day that the riot started. And when we came home, uh, everything was in an uproar. And uh, there was a main uh, intersection about a block or two from my house. And so at one point in the evening, when it had to be 85 degrees, it was it was terribly hot. Uh, my mother and my sister and I and some neighbors walked down to that intersection just to sort of see what was going on. And shortly after being there, uh, someone drove up and fired on the crowd uh, with shotguns. And pretty much everyone was hit except for me. Uh, so I ran home. Uh, to get my father, uh, and then my father went and got my mother and my sister and a couple other people and took them to the hospital. My mother had been shot in the back, and she was in the hospital for a few weeks. Uh, And pretty much the rest of her life, she had back issues as a result uh, of that. Uh, My sister had been shot in the leg, and so she was treated, but uh, since her injuries were not that serious, uh, she was uh, sent home. Now, when I talked to you in 2011, uh, I hadn't really talked to my older sister, the one who had been shot about it, uh, or my younger sister. Uh, And my younger sister did not go with this, and she told me that my father had specifically uh, had thought it was too dangerous. And so that kind of saved her from being being down there. Uh, And then she told me, which I had completely forgotten, that when I came home and my father went to get my mother and sister, he gave me a shotgun and told me to sit there and guard my sister. And I completely forgot about that. I'm not sure I blocked it out, but both of my sisters said, yeah, that, that's what happened. So it was, you know, it was a traumatizing event, uh, but a catalyzing one as well, because I think from that and given the age uh, that I was at the time, it was a good, period for me to really begin to uh, think about community service and making a contribution uh, to try to create a world where we didn't have these kinds of uh, situations. For those that don't remember that riot, 43 people died, 1,189 were injured, there were 7,200 arrests, there were 400 buildings destroyed. Uh, the 82nd and 101st Airborne were flown in by Lyndon Johnson, who was president at the time. George Romney was the governor of Michigan, and he brought the Michigan National Guard in. Uh, when you uh, think back on that, do you do you know, or did your sister or mother ever know, where you were they shot by a white person or a black person? Uh, we never knew 
Uh, there were suspicions that it was uh, someone white, but uh, it was just chaos. And so no one ever kind of really knew uh, for sure. Uh, no one died that we know of uh, in that particular incident because we knew a couple of neighbors who had also uh, been injured. Uh, but again, you know, it was, it was extremely uh, traumatizing. I should tell the audience that I was there in the military, uh, and I I, I didn't say that the last time, but it's only fair that people know I was 25 years old and sent out there by the Pentagon without a uniform on to be in the chief of police office to be kind of a a secretary to the big shots that came in to deal with it from the federal government. And uh, that's one of the reasons that I wanted to hear more from you on that. Here's another side to it because of your interest in music. I'm going to play you, and uh, we'll keep the mics open, but it's only about 48 seconds, of a song by a white man named Gordon Lightfoot, who was a Canadian. This became a big hit back in uh, right after the riots, along with five other big hits, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Let's, uh, let's listen to it. Black day in July, Motor City madness has touched the countryside. And the people rise in anger And the streets begin to fill And there's gunfire from the rooftops And the blood begins to spill Like day in July In the mansion of the governor There's nothing that is known for sure The telephone is ringing And the pendulum is swinging And they wonder how it happened And they really know the reason And it wasn't just a temperature And it wasn't just a season Black Day in July Clarence Lucene, do you know that song? Uh, I do not. Uh, I know Gordon Lightfoot in in his work out of the period, but I don't remember that particular song. The others that came out of that, the other hits, were The Motor City is Burning by John Lee Hooker, Panic in Detroit by David Bowie, Dancing in the Street by Martha and the Vandellas, and Ball of Confusion by The Temptations. Uh, Right, right. what, What are your memories of the impact of that event? Uh, well, certainly those songs you mentioned, Dancing in the Street and uh, Ball of Confusion, uh, you know, certainly became very popular. And what one of the things we witnessed was that the Motown uh, sound, which had essentially been the soundtrack of that period, uh, but had focused on love songs and romantic songs, uh, you begin to see a shift. Uh, Stevie Wonder... Marvin Gaye, uh, Marvin Gaye put out an album called What's Going On, uh, which I believe last year was officially, uh, there's an official What's Going On day uh, in Michigan because the song had such a, uh, and the album had such an iconic uh, impact. Uh, But you begin to see artists reflect and discuss the uh, times that were uh, evolving and so that, you know, also had an impact on my age group and, and folks who were older. And so, I, you know, I think that created a generation of people uh, in Detroit, but pretty much around the country, uh, that saw the need for uh, social change as a, a lifetime kind of uh, aspiration. And so I you know, people that I grew up with, uh, even to this day, you know, have a sense of social responsibility uh, that I think very much was shaped by, by our experiences in that period. At the time, if I read it right, there were 30 percent of Detroit was the population was African-American. Today, it's 78 percent. But the other figure I wanted to ask you about, and what do you think it means that During the riots, there were 1.6 million in population in Detroit. It was the fifth largest city in the United States. Today, there are just over 600,000. That makes it the 24th largest city. What has happened there? I know it's your hometown. And uh, did this riot change all that? I I think uh, I'm glad you're raising this uh, because I think it's probably mysterious to many people around the country just what happened 
and why is he, you know, lost, you know, more than half of his population? Uh, there were a number of factors that came together in that period. One, there had already been a white flight trend, meaning that whites in Detroit were, uh, middle-class whites in particular, were beginning to move out to Dearborn and Bloomfield Hills, some of the suburbs. And so the city was already changing. Uh, and then shortly after, uh, would get his first uh, black mayor, Coleman Young. Uh, so that was one factor. Uh, but then deindustrialization. And Detroit, uh, unlike some cities and like some cities, uh, did not adequately plan for what would happen if there was a downturn in the auto industry or if the auto industry shifted uh, elsewhere, uh, out the country, for example. And so not being prepared for that eventuality, the city had a very, very difficult time uh, when the oil crisis hit and then when the auto industry uh, dramatically shifted uh, away. I think I had mentioned uh, before uh, I had worked for a short time at the Ford Motor Company, uh, the Ruich plant, uh, which at one point had been one of the largest plants in the world with tens of thousands of people uh, working there. And I literally applied one day and was working the next. Uh, and so the opportunities in the late 60s, early 70s were extremely high. Uh, but that, of course, changed and it created, you know, massive poverty in, uh, and economic despair uh, in the city. And the city just it simply never was able to recover. And then with the crack epidemic uh, that came in, in the 80s, 90s and crime, uh, it drove, uh, you know, many people out of the city. And again, the city had not adjusted. Uh, and it took a while. Uh, there are people actually coming back to the city. Uh, it stabilized probably 10 or 15 years ago. And uh, you begin to see a bit of a turnaround. Uh, but it's still very challenging in the city. Uh, and the city looks strange because with so many people having left, it meant that whole neighborhoods disappeared. And because it was a blight of housing, abandoned housing, uh, the city also at one point just leveled uh, those areas. So you go around the city and they're just patchworks of uh, grassy area. Uh, where I grew up simply does not exist anymore. It's just like a pasture. It's just like a large area where there used to be houses, there used to be homes, and uh, that's all gone. Uh, but in the center of the city, uh, the rents have been rising. Housing prices have been rising uh, because, you know, there's a certain attractiveness to the city now and, uh, uh, you know, generations later, a couple of generations later. What comparison would you make between what happened after the 67 Detroit riots and what happened after the George Floyd death? Uh, interesting question. Uh, the 67 riot, uh, uh, as you know, took place where in the middle of what was what were movements already around the country. So you had radical organizations like the Black Panther Party, uh, which had started in 1966. Uh, so in 1967 and then into 68 and 69, it was actually growing and peaking. You had the civil rights movement, uh, although uh, some would say it peaked after the 64 Voting Rights Act and the 65, I mean, 64 Civil Rights Act and the 65 uh, Voting Rights Act, uh, but it still existed. And you also had a period in which the first large generation of elected officials at the local level, uh, at the state level, and then at the federal level uh, was starting to uh, develop. The Voting Rights Act in 1965 initiated a wide opportunity, uh, and so you begin to see many people focused on that. Uh, 
when we get to the George Floyd uh, uh, crisis uh, in uh, 2020, we're in a very, very different period. There are activist organizations, but they're somewhat uh, limited. And and it happens, of course, in the middle of uh, a pandemic. Uh, and it happens in a situation where you've got millions of people sitting at home uh, who are shocked uh, out of their seats by what happened with George Floyd, uh, in part because, of course, it was recorded. And so you get uh, people who had never thought about being active uh, kind of out in the streets. Uh, I talk to my students about this a lot, actually, and that's exactly what happened with them. They were at home, and, you know, they may have protested even if they had been on campus, but, you know, they were at home, uh, had nothing to do, and so that became an outlet. Uh, and then, of course, there were other cases that, fed into uh, the George Floyd uh, moment. Uh, Breonna Taylor, Amon Arbery, uh, and so forth, uh, that just continually fed the uh, uh, anger uh, by uh, many young people and older people uh, about these unresolved issues of police uh, killings and harassment uh, or extra uh, judicial killings of, of individuals. As you remember, we first talked about your book about the black history of the White House, and that was back again in 2011. If I read it right, you have not written a book since then, but have one coming out soon. Two questions. Why no book over the last 11 years, and why the new one? Uh, great question. So kind of as an academic you write books, but you also write articles and you work on research projects. So I've been doing a lot of that uh, over the last uh, 10 years or so. And, you know, that's the kind of work that's sort of in-house uh, or within your uh, sort of field. Uh, and and as I mentioned before, being chair was, was a just significant uh, amount of time and energy. Uh, but having sort of gotten past that, uh, what I uh, have coming out this year is a book called uh, $20 and Chained, uh, Harriet Tubman, Jet, uh, Andrew Jackson, in the Future of American Democracy. And what I do in that work is look at the issue of Harriet Tubman being on the $20 bill. And what does that mean in terms of this uh, view of history and democracy through the lens of Harriet Tubman versus the lens of Andrew Jackson. But beyond that, how does the uh, question about her being on the $20 bill reflect the period we're in overall? Uh, and particularly uh, something that I've been working on the last 10 years or so around issues of democracy. And so uh, part of what I've been doing uh, since you and I last talked has been a lot of time on the road, uh, some working through the State Department, through other vehicles, uh, going to places, and in some instances taking my students, looking at these issues of human rights, uh, democracy, uh, and racial justice. So I took students to Rwanda. Uh, we went on the uh, 20th anniversary of the genocide uh, that happened there. Uh, I've been with students to Vietnam, to Cambodia, to uh, Cuba, and to China. Um, part of the work I've been doing with the State Department has been with uh, giving talks on these issues. Uh, in Pakistan, in New Zealand, in Brazil, uh, even in Ukraine, uh, to, again, try to look at how democracy is shaping up uh, in this period and anti-democracy, the authoritarian uh, thrust uh, that we're seeing in many places around the world and, and even here in the United States. Uh, certainly different from 2011 
when Barack Obama was president and uh, even with the challenges that he faced and the rise of Black Lives Matter and, and other campaigns, uh, there was some sense of uh, hope and optimism. Uh, and that changed dramatically uh, after 2016. And we're still kind of living through the consequences uh, of the last presidency. And so a lot of my work has been been focused on that. And the new book uh, really kind of takes up this issue of democracy. Go back to the early your early life in Detroit. You went uh, eventually to Wayne State University, which is right there in Detroit, for your undergraduate work. Then you got your master's and your Ph.D. at Howard. What were the what what were your um, uh, what were your ways of getting from your life in Detroit out as and now a full professor at Howard University under you know all circumstances you've been a big success. What would you? Why would you? Uh, how'd you get there? That's my question. What, along the way, who made a difference in your life, and uh, um, what would you tell other young people about how they can do what you've done? Uh, well, thank you for that. So, uh, one thing I would I would point out uh, is uh, good fortune, uh, because I think often what happens to people along their way is uh, unlucky events. You know, people get illnesses, people have accidents. There are things that uh, happen that derail people in their life. And so I, I always want to kind of underscore, uh, you know, people should really count their blessings as they uh, kind of go through. Because, uh, you know, we could have catastrophes and, you know, that that can just have an impact for uh, decades, if not the rest of your life. So, you know, part of it has been, you know, I've just been very fortunate, I think, uh, uh, just in a general kind of sense. Uh, then I think... I have uh, focused uh, not as much on trying to be a success as much as in any environment in which I find myself trying to be the best and most ethical uh, person uh, in that situation. And then I think, you know, applying that, uh, that keeps me grounded uh, and keeps me focused. Uh, and then, to me, it was also important uh, in terms of uh, family and uh, having family support and having uh, responsibility uh, for family and, you know, trying to, to, to keep on along those lines. Uh, and then I also had uh, great teachers from elementary school, uh, actually all the way up to uh, into the university. And uh, hopefully that has shaped how I teach, uh, being very uh, sensitive to what helps students learn as well as what helps students uh, keep students grounded uh, along the way as they're, they're facing challenges. Thank you, Tom. Uh, but teachers that I've teachers I've had have been just absolutely outstanding and uh, kept me going on the straight and narrow. I think you told me <clears throat> that your mother had a fifth grade education as far as she went and your father eighth grade, or it may have been reversed. Is that true? Uh, yep, that's true. Uh, but both were very uh, education oriented. And, you know, their goals uh, at the time was that, was that my sisters and I, were, you know, we definitely had to get out of high school. Uh, but then as we got older, uh, you know, my mother was uh, quite aware of, you know, there might be opportunities for, for us to go to college. And so, you know, she was an advocate for that as well. So there was, you know, family support uh, all along the way. Did your two sisters go to college? Uh, they did. What, um, and one went to, to Wayne State. And what are they doing today? Uh, they both are retired. So, uh, you know, we're all like in our 60s now. And so uh, they, you know, worked for uh, the city of Detroit and worked in uh, utility companies. Uh, and they they have 
finished. They're retired. My younger sister uh, has a place in Florida. Uh, we go down there and hang out. So I'm the I'm the old guy that's still working. <laughs> go back to <clears throat> what you said about going to Rwanda and Vietnam and Cambodia and Cuba and China with students. How how many did you take? And how did you afford, or how did they afford to be able to do this? Oh, so most universities now have—I won't say most, but a lot of universities now have uh, what are called study abroad programs. And so these are well organized part of the university where there are partnerships uh, with uh, universities in other countries, and so it's just kind of a normal thing for students. Uh, and I really encourage it uh, that at some point in their uh, university uh, career, uh, they should spend a semester or spend a year uh, studying somewhere. Uh, so you have study abroad programs. And so I've taken students on that. For example, uh, when Obama was president, uh, the relationship with Cuba had opened up. And so a lot of universities had partnerships with the University of Havana and other schools uh, to bring students down and to have a course. Uh, so I st- took students uh, to do that, uh, same in, in Brazil. And then student, uh, a lot of universities also have what are called uh, programs where uh, called alternative breaks, and these are doing either spring break or summer break where students will organize trips that are related to issues of social consciousness. Uh, It could be here in the United States doing work on a Native American uh, reservation, for example, or internationally. So so to Rwanda, uh, we had an alternative break uh, uh, tour, a visit, uh, with I think there were 15 students uh, that were on that trip. And, you know, we organized the trip, we organized the itinerary, uh, we, visit, uh, we visited museums relative to the uh, genocide. We talked with lots and lots of people who had uh, been victim as well as people who had perpetrated uh, the genocide. We went to a prison, for example, uh, and we met with uh, doctors, we met with diplomats. Uh, so... Uh, and these are students uh, pay for this. Uh, part of the university pays for it as well. Uh, it comes out of their their tuition, uh, but that's you know it's it's uh, a finance situation, and it varies. Uh, when I went to Cuba, well, I went to Cuba several times. Uh, one, we had about twelve graduate students. Uh, which was very different than uh, going with undergraduate students because the graduate students all have specific research projects. Uh, the undergraduate students is more kind of a general uh, exposure. Um, so that's the situation. From all your travel, all the different countries, did you ever notice your race making a difference to the people you were visiting? Uh, yeah, because uh, there were areas or, or countries I went to where there just were not a lot of African Americans or people of African descent, uh, like Vietnam, uh, for example, where uh, there, of course, there had been uh, African Americans there uh, back during the war days, but uh, not a lot there now. Uh, so it can be kind of unusual. Uh, and in Ukraine, uh, there there's a notable uh, African population uh, during the uh, Cold War period when the Soviet Union was around. Uh, it invited uh, students from Africa and from other developing country uh, the countries in the developing world uh, to come and study. When the Soviet Union fell, a lot of that stopped. Uh, but Ukraine actually continued and expanded the program. So there were a lot of uh, African students, and there are a lot of African students uh, in Ukraine. Now, as it turns out, many of them are in eastern Ukraine, which is where the war broke out uh, back in 2014. 
And uh, when I actually went there on this State Department uh, trip to to talk about human rights, uh, it was shortly after the war had broke out. Uh, I was in the capital for a while in Kiev and got a chance to meet with some of the uh, 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 black people who live in in Ukraine. There's a uh, one black human rights organization, and I had an opportunity to to meet with them and then uh, go around and talk to some of the some people that they were working with. Uh, but then when I went to Western Ukraine, uh, to Lviv, where I was was giving my um, it was like a week present uh, seminars on human rights. I did not see another single black person at all. And so, you know, it was that kind of uh, environment. So I've been in that before and, you know, you kind of, kind of deal with it. Um, generally it's not a problem. It's more kind of your curiosity, but sometimes it can be uh, tense. We have not spoken a lot about politics, but I want to read a paragraph that you wrote back uh, in 2009 on a blog called Racewire, the Color Lines blog, and it uh, presents you with a very strong view of uh, of some of the politicians and gets you to react to where you are today. And you said in 2009, <clears throat> already the Rep- this is during the Obama administration. Already the Republicans are gearing up for the fight over climate change. They clearly believe that if the tactics of intimidation, misinformation, outright lies, agitation and not a little bit of racism from Fox News and hysterically uh, conservative radio host Rush Limbaugh worked so well to derail health reform, why not employ them again? You wrote that actually before you and I talked last time, but where's your head on uh, language like that about people that uh, you might not agree with? Uh, Yeah, those are the good old days. Uh, So... I think uh, we're in a very, very challenging uh, moment, Uh, and we're at a crossroads of whether or not democracy in the United States will continue to be fought for, and we will continue a process of democratizing, or if we're going to go in another direction. And I went back and read a speech uh, from 1995, called Racism and Fascism, which talked about a lot of what was coming, that there you would have a media that would turn very far to the right. You would have elected leaders that would blatantly gaslight uh, and lie to people. You would have an atmosphere of trying to create silence. Uh, this is a really, really powerful speech, and it was given by Toni Morrison at Howard University in 1995. And she was very perceptive uh, about what was coming down the road. And I think we're at that moment where the question of will a political cult around the former president be able to continue to ascend and impact and shape one major political party in this country, or will it begin to uh, create a fissure in that party that will begin to respond to uh, this very uh, dangerous element? And I think the uh, jury is still out on on that question. And what the 22 elections, 2022 elections and 2024 elections uh, for both is not really great. Uh, it's difficult to see how uh, the Republican side will accept losing or how the Democratic side, side will accept another Trump ascendancy. So we're, we're in uh, a situation where I'm, I am uh, very worried, and I'm generally optimistic, uh, but I'm, I'm very worried about these trends. When you see a American uh, black like Clarence Thomas or Jason Riley, and you wrote about Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell 
even though Colin Powell switched uh, to be an Obama supporter. But when you see a, a black person who is supporting the Trump administration, whether it's Ben Carson or whatever, what's your reaction to that? So I, I, I do draw, draw a distinction between uh, black people who are conservative that I that I've, uh, you know very much disagree with, uh, but it's disagreement on principles, uh, which I think is very different than support for someone who has fascist uh, tendencies and who would in a second uh, send the country uh, back decades and generations. And so I, I'm not tolerant uh, of trying to uh, understand why, or not try to understand, but to uh, not be critical of that as beyond just sort of political disagreement, but actually uh, exceeding to, you know, at the most dangerous elements uh, in the country. So in that sense, you know, Colin Powell, you know, certainly I had disagreements with him. Uh, and I think he's a conservative, you know, all all the way. Uh, but I think he took the right and principled stand uh, when he saw what was going on uh, uh, with uh, Donald Trump. When you look at a Ben Carson, in my estimation, uh, or Clarence Thomas, uh, they have decided to go with the authoritarian uh, road. And, you know, that uh, to me is beyond whether they're, they're black or white, uh, but that they have, you know, made a decision that could bring, you know, the worst harm to the country, uh, to everybody, and, and that that uh, should be criticized. Go back to your times, your many, how many times have you been to Cuba? Uh, maybe 10 or 15. It's been a lot. <laughs> You talk about I went earlier. I went earlier when I was in uh, very young in the in the seventies. You talk a lot about the importance of democracy. Um, I tell me if I'm wrong, but Cuba is not even close to a democracy. And you're down there a lot. Do you teach democracy in the middle of that uh, group down there, or you just go another direction? No. So I agree. I think Cuba is not a democracy, uh, but I think it's a society that you can engage with and uh, uh, at various points has been open to challenges around uh, raising issues around democracy and race. So when I took students down in 2013, I think it was, uh, we had a course on uh, Cuba and race uh, and at that point in Cuba, you could talk about the issue. You couldn't do it earlier. I've been down in other periods where the issue could not come up at all. But uh, Cuba had evolved, and it didn't just necessarily agree uh, with the perspective that some of us had. Uh, but you could have that discussion. So I see it as kind of opening, uh, like Vietnam. Vietnam is not a democracy either, but you can have discussions. Um, even as you try to uh, push for uh, a, a greater understanding uh, of democracy and need to respect and respect for human rights uh, and those kinds of uh, of issues. Do you feel any? Uh, but Cuba, Go ahead. Is, you know, Cuba is too close to us to ignore, and you know, isolation just has not worked. What's your view, uh, and this has been talked about a lot lately, uh, by the time people hear this, the Olympics will be over in China. But leading up to it, a lot of talk about the imprisonment of the Uyghurs, a million or so over there who kept you know away from uh, even a non-democracy like China. But do you feel any need when you go into a place like China to protest that kind of thing? Uh, uh I would not say protest as much as uh, to raise the challenge and raise the issue. So I've uh, been in China and I've met with uh, former generals, for example, who have a deathly fear of uh, U.S. Uh, efforts to destroy China. 
and that sort of shapes, you know, everything they do. And, you know, I will sit down with them, with, you know, other colleagues and, you know, walk through, you know, what I think is, uh, you know, the U.S. agenda towards China and what people in the U.S. do not, are not trying to destroy China, do not want a war. Uh, but also that, you know, China is not a democracy. And, you know, that is a fundamental kind of difference uh, uh, to discuss. And so, you know, when I go to these countries, most of the time I'm going uh, to talk about human rights and democracy and, and, and racial justice. So, you know, I try to keep all of that stuff on the table uh, as much as possible. Uh, I think I mentioned to you, I, I was in Pakistan. Uh, which, again, in my estimation, is not a democracy. And uh, I spent pretty much all of my time, and I think I talked at like seven or eight universities. I talked to some human rights organizations, to some religious groups. Uh, all of my focus was on human rights, uh, civil rights, and political rights. Anybody ever try to, <laughs> this is strong, shut you down in any of your visits? Oh, sure. Uh, but, you know, most of the time, you know, just, you know, the fact that I even get there means that it's it's kind of organized. Uh, but, you know, they will sometimes, uh, like when I was in Pakistan, uh, there was an article in one of the newspapers, uh, you know, pretty much calling me an imperialist and, you know, some other names. <laughs> uh, so, you know, so there's going to be an effort uh, to do that. But you know, I figure if they let you in the country and they know why you're coming, then, you know, you got at least a, a somewhat of a door open. Um, and, you know, and Pakistan was, you know, was was uh, dangerous. Uh, and so it required, you know, 24-hour security. Uh, but it wasn't just for me. It's, you know, for, for you know, all American uh, and American diplomats. Uh, but, you know, even in that context, you know, you have to, uh, uh, stand your ground. Come back to your son, Ellington. Again, how old is he? Uh, he's uh, He'll be 13 next month, taller than me, uh, and he, he, he's doing well. He's in uh, middle school now. Uh, he very much likes math and science. Those are kind of his, his two wheelhouses. You often hear black parents talk about having that conversation with their sons. Uh, and you know what I'm talking about, driving them all black and all these uh, references to race. Have you had that conversation with your son? And if you have, what did you tell him? Uh, we have had that conversation. Uh, we've had it a couple of times because, you, know, you know, having it when he's nine is different than having it when he's 12, uh, where, you know, now he's he's much more out there in the world uh, in terms of, you know, visiting friends or that kind of thing. Uh, but the thing I also remind him to, because uh, I don't want him uh, traumatized and frightened, but to, to be, uh, you know, to be assertive and uh, intentional, uh, it's, you know, about his grandmother. I don't know if I mentioned it to you before, but, you know, my grandmother had been on those uh, Pettus Bridge marches in 1965 uh, with Martin Luther King. And, you know, before that and after that, you know, she had been active uh, in the civil rights movement in and around Birmingham, Alabama. And so, you know, I remind him that, you know, he keeps out of a tradition uh, in our family of, you know, people who speak up against uh, racial justice. And so, you know, why he has to be careful and understand that, uh, particularly as he's gotten bigger, uh, that, you know, he may be in situations uh, that are, you know, racially problematic. Uh, in the broader context, you know, he, he has a, a responsibility uh, to, you know, speak out against uh, these kinds of issues. How often has he said to you, Dad, I've, I was just, uh, uh, you know, treated badly today because of my race? Uh, he has uh, never said that. Uh, he, his elementary school was predominantly black, uh, and it was a great school, uh, and it was very, uh, it was IBE uh, school, International Baccalaureate. So uh, the school 
uh, focused not only on, in a broad sense, on issues around social justice, but also in the international context. Uh, and again, I think, you know, not only his experiences in Japan, uh, but as much as I can, I take him with me. So he went with me to New Zealand. He's been with me to other countries. Uh, and so he knows the kind of discussions I have and talks I have. And so, uh, you know, he kind of recognizes that. And then the school he's in now uh, is overwhelmingly uh, white and uh, middle class, uh, but uh, very uh, liberal and conscious. And so they would discuss the Holocaust. They would discuss civil rights. They would discuss LGBTQT issues. You know, so he's in a um, uh, environment where I think he he's getting a you know well-rounded uh, education. So when I talk to him about uh, policing and race, uh, he it, it, there's a context for it. As you know, the population of the United States has about 13 percent African Americans, but the prison population is about 40 percent African Americans. Why do you think that's the case, and what's the answer to getting to reducing that number? So I think in many ways that's kind of always been the case. Uh, there's just been a very long-standing way in which uh, policing has been one of the uh, vehicles for uh, social control. And to the degree, particularly in areas uh, like in the South, for example, but also outside of the South, uh, where uh, uh, racial segregation and racialization of housing, policing, education, healthcare, all were uh, fairly acute, uh, then you see these uh, disproportionalities. Uh, there's tremendous need for uh, reform in the criminal justice system. Uh, the George Floyd uh, uh, Policing Act, uh, Policing in America Act, uh, would have been an important step, although it had many limits, uh, but it, it could not even get uh, a hearing uh, on the Senate side. So until there's a commitment for uh, legislators, either at the state or federal level, to uh, seriously begin to look at what are some, you know, many ways, steps that can be taken to address some of these concerns, uh, it will continue almost an automatic pilot, uh, even in circumstances where there are black mayors or black governors uh, or black attorney generals. Uh, there's a institutionalization uh, that continues to feed these racial disparities. We'll wrap it up. <clears throat> but before we do, I want to ask you one. I read somewhere where you uh, talked about a relationship you had with Harry Belafonte. And I yeah. know you teach some jazz in your classes. Why do you teach jazz? And <laughs> what was your what was your uh, relationship with Harry Belafonte? Uh, so uh, uh, Harry Belafonte and I uh, were both on the uh, board of directors of the uh, Institute uh, for Policy Studies uh, for many years. Uh, so I kind of knew him through that context. Uh, but then sort of broader, uh, he and I, you know, had much in common in terms of, uh, you know, what we saw as kind of an agenda for where uh, the country kind of needed to go. Uh, and I haven't talked to him in a few years, uh, but, you know, he was he was just kind of a buddy of mine. And, uh, you know, I would go up to New York and, and have dinner with him and just kind of hang out. Uh, and then we uh, traveled together a little bit. Uh, uh, we were in Cuba together. Uh, we were in England together for the uh, opening of the British Slave Museum uh, in Liverpool. And then uh, I had arranged some meetings for him uh, in London um, to meet with some of the, the activists there as well as some of the uh, uh, local politi political leaders uh, in the UK. Uh, so so, you know, and, and Belafonte is Belafonte. You know, he just kind of shines, you know, whatever the environment is in. You know, he knows what to do and what to say. And so 
Uh, I've just, you know, learned so much from him uh, over the years. Uh, so that's just been, you know, a, just a really, really kind of great experience. And then uh, with the jazz, um, it always has been uh, both personally fulfilling for me. Uh, I grew up in a house where we played the music and I hung out with jazz musicians. Uh, but it also to me has been a way to talk about the world uh, in ways that are, I think, accessible to people without seeming to be kind of overly political. But, you know, jazz has been, you know, on every face in the world that you can think of, and it has had a significance. And so when I teach about jazz globally, uh, it's not just about the music, but it's about context, and it's about history, and it's about relations. Last question, your number one favorite jazz artist. My number one favorite one, jazz, do you say musician? Jazz artist, yeah, or musician, yeah. Uh, I would say Wes Montgomery. Why? I just uh, love his music. I play guitar. And he, to me, was a bridge because when I started listening to Wes Montgomery is when he was playing Beatles music, but he was jazzifying them. And so uh, I just thought it just, you know, just had such a remarkable uh, resonance with me. And so, you know, to this day, you know, he's on my playlist pretty much every day. And the good news is he was born in Indiana. I will end it there. That's my home state. This is true. <laughs> Clarence right. Lusane, professor at Howard University, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Brian. It's been great to reconnect. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. Thank mm-hmm. you.